Hello, I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting. Today we're talking about ageism and I'm joined by Anna Dixon, who's the Chief Executive at the charity, the Centre for Ageing Better, and Eugene Marchese, who's the boss at Guild Living, which is set up by Legal and General to focus on the town centre development of retirement communities. Now, with the care home scandal this year and the can continually being kicked down the road on reforming social care, debate over whether society is ageist has been growing um, and whether it's around the way that older people are depicted in the media or in advertising uh, there's clearly a lot uh, there's a lot to be discussed really around how we want people to live how we want them to age and about the role that planners and councils have to play when it comes to housing and repurposing town centres so let's crack straight in so Anna tell us about the Centre for Aging Better. So I mean, the clue is probably in the name, but, but but for those that aren't familiar with you guys, tell us a little bit about what you do. Yeah, great. Well, yes, it is in the name. Uh, we are a charity that's focused on trying to create a society in which we all age better, i.e. enjoy later life. And uh, unfortunately, that's not the case for um, everybody today. So uh, things are going to need to change. And yeah, we... Um, try to influence both policy at national and local level but also practice so you know what employers are doing house builders and what's going on in communities um and we focus really on what's the evidence you know what's the evidence to support what needs to change what the problem is uh what sort of interventions or policies are going to work and mm. um yeah then partner with others to put that into practice yeah so what what is the problem i mean could, because i guess you know some would say you know employment law has been you know has been relatively progressive in recent years we've obviously had many public debates certainly over the last couple of years about the gender pay gap and although it's obviously there is still a gap the fact that we're talking about it and the fact that that, that it's being exposed and discussed particularly when you look at um you know big big organizations like the bbc for example has been heavily scrutinized for this what is the actual problem when it comes to aging that that, that needs to be solved well, there is a huge demographic shift, what I call the age shift happening, uh, which is a result of a good thing. Most of us are living longer than previous generations. And also that the big baby boom that happened in the 1960s, all those people are, in a sense, entering later life now. And uh, the issue is that at the moment, we're not doing enough to respond to that. And unfortunately, that age shift is portrayed as a really negative problem for society. So I tackle this head on in, in my book, The Age of Aging Better, really calling these people doom mongers because they, 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 they're calling this something like a tsunami of older people. Um, they talk about the burden on the NHS, um, you know, the pension time bomb. I mean, it's all just such negative language about what should be a celebration of the fact that as a result of improvements in living standards and public health you know we more of us are living longer and yet but do you think would you think that we're, we're being honest about the cost because I, I take your point and i think you're absolutely right but but equally i think younger people might 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 look at this and go well like you know i haven't had massive house prices i can't even afford to get on the housing ladder which is where let's face it a lot of people build and store their wealth and they will look at generous handouts being given you know policies like the triple lock on pensions that may or may not come off at some point well, who knows but these but, sorts of you, arguments you think, that set young against old i think are just really unhelpful you know I mean, there's huge inequalities in amongst people in later life. The idea that everybody's sitting on a wealthy um, pile in terms of both pension and 
um, housing wealth is just, you know, is just not the case. I mean, clearly, because of problems in the housing market, it has become much more difficult for younger people to get on the housing ladder. But let's not blame, you know, the so-called baby boomers for that. And let's not think that all older people, you know, there's there's still over a million um, pensioners living in poverty. And, mm. uh, you know, there are quite a lot of uh, pensioners who have very minimal housing assets, depending on where they live. And actually can't maintain those homes because they don't have the income to go with it. So I think it's really critical we have a realistic view of the diversity of, of old age and actually look for solutions that work for people of all ages. And, you know, take the triple lock, for example. The, the issue there is, you know, the state pension isn't that generous in terms of for people to live off. And the triple lock just ensures that it keeps pace with the cost of living and with earnings. And the issue is that working age benefits have been massively cut. You know, so let's mm. not focus the problem on an overgenerous state pension. It's not overgenerous. Let's but, focus but, on the issue which is working age benefits. But do you think given you know, given what we've seen during the pandemic, where obviously the the a huge focus has, has has come on to care, has come on to how we treat the elderly because let's face it you know they're not a, a homogenous group as you correctly say you, you can't just bunch everybody into one bracket but that's essentially what the government has done this year it's essentially what's happened in saying that everyone over a certain age has to has to stay at home but do you think um do you think that the, the pandemic experience and the focus and the chaos that we've seen with with care homes and and you know in, in fairness Theresa May, who tried to raise this policy and got 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 literally shot in the back of the head for it by her party, uh, do you think this this need for an honest conversation about how we fund care it needs to be had now? Well, you're right to say that in the initial policy response to um, the pandemic, there was some very unhelpful language, sort of basically suggesting that everybody over 70 was vulnerable, needy and dependent. And obviously, again, that that's not true. Whilst there clearly are people, particularly those who are getting towards the end of their life, who um, were in need of, of care or were living in care homes, were extremely exposed and frankly, you know, invisible, it seemed, when it came to PPE and the sort of response um that we saw in terms of the NHS, it just wasn't matched in terms of, of social care. But, um, you know, I think it, it failed to recognise that there are also quite a lot of 70 plus year olds who are extremely active, who are, you know, essential in terms of grandparenting and care to enable people to keep working, uh, yeah. who were the core of volunteering and voluntary sort of action in the community, who suddenly all had to withdraw. Um, so I think it's, again, just really underlined that the response needs to be more nuanced and, and recognise that people are ageing very differently. Yeah, yeah. So let's bring in Eugene Marchese. So Eugene, you've designed many different retirement housing projects right across different parts of Asia, Australia, New Zealand. Um, and we'll, we'll park the housing piece for now. We'll come on to that in a minute. But I, I'm interested to kind of get your views on the attitude piece that Anna's talked very passionately about, because we do have this this relatively regressive view in the UK. It's very much us and them. And that, that's always been the, the English way in, in many respects, you could argue. How different is this in 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 Oz, in in New Zealand, in in Asia? 
So, Andrew, if you compare the, what happened in Australia during uh, COVID over the last eight months, so let, let, let's take from the beginning of March until uh, this month, I think Australia has seen somewhere, somewhere in the order of about 400 to 500 deaths in care homes. Now, when you compare that to the UK situation where we've seen upwards of 17,000, 18,000 deaths in care homes, um, there, there is something systematic that's, that's not working in the UK as opposed to what's happening in Australia. And, and I think when the dust settles and you know, everything calms down and, and all the right investigations happen, we'll see that the actual, uh, the way that older people are housed and, and you know, looked after in care homes in the UK is where the fundamental problem occurs. And that is the cross-contamination that happens with people, you know, with, with, with the care providers coming and going from various care homes and, and, and impacting, you know, across a wide variety of, of occupants. Um, untracked, untraced, uh, and without any control. Now, how does that happen? Well, you know, we, we've been working in the Australian and New Zealand care home sector as architects for the last 20 years. And what, what it becomes quickly apparent is that the, the funding models, the, uh, the policy that government sets up for these, you know, to, to, be, to be delivered and operated in, is, is very, very different to what's happening in the UK and what's happened in the last 20 or 30 years in the UK. Um, and and th this is probably not the conversation to get into that detail, but that, you know, we need to take a step back, a 20,000, you know, metre view of what's how, how care homes are established, operated and funded in the UK before you get into the detail of, of you know, uh, uh, the, the individual person, you know, living there. And, and I think and, until you until you do that, you're not going to get to the solution. But in terms of, I guess, the broader societal attitudes, how do they differ? Because, again, here we, we, we do have this view, which is, you know, which is that, you know, you, you retire at 65 and, and you, 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 you know, you, you get on, you go on a cruise maybe, or you go and do some charity work or you, know, you, yeah. you look after the grandkids and that, that's, but that is essentially the, the kind of the British stereotype, isn't it? I, I think, I think there is, uh, there is, again, you, you talk about fundamental um, perceptions and how people operate within the society. Um, and Anne was right to say that not every older person is a wealthy person. You know, they're, they're, you know it cuts across all, all demographics. Um, but what I've seen in Australia and New Zealand is that there is, there is a, a greater propensity for people who can afford it to pay for their own care. And if you, if you compare that to the UK, where everybody looks to rely on the NHS as their care provider, and I say everybody, the bulk of people, whether they are wealthy or not wealthy, then, then the, there is no way that the NHS can provide care for everybody, you know, without a cost, without some sort of give somewhere. And what I am seeing and what COVID, I think, has proven is that that is the case, that something had to give and where it's given is in the adult social care. And, and, you know, the lack of PPE, the lack of, um, you know, control, all those factors caused in the end, you know, 18,000 odd people to die in the last eight to nine months. And, and so, so if, if there is 
if there is policies in place that compel people who can afford to to do some of the heavy lifting for you know that that, that economic heavy lifting that the government expects um, you know NHS to do, then I think you'll see a shift in the ability of um, you know the, the the ability for care models to operate under better circumstances in the UK and avoid what's happened in the last nine months. Can I come in on this? Um, because obviously here, social care is funded by local authorities. And the big issue is that local authorities have had huge cuts. And so we've ended up with a care system that is not only heavily means tested, which means that only the very poorest get any free care at all. Uh, and it's not free. They also face charges. And secondly, that only those within crisis, basically, in the highest level of need. And, and that is fundamentally um, the issue. I mean, you know, fine if you have a medical issue, but if you have a non-medical care need, the system here is really uh, stripped back to the bone. And so people already do have to pay themselves. They just don't mostly know it until they actually need care. Mm -hmm. And they actually, you know, have to eat into, if they are lucky enough to own a home, a huge part of the asset of the home before they get any free care uh, from the local authorities. So, you know, I think the issue here is the huge inequality between the generosity of the NHS, effectively, where if you have a medical need, and the absolutely terrible rationing that there is if you have a care need. And that's true whether you need a, a high level of care and going into a care home or just some low-level care that can keep you independent at home. And we've surely got to see a massive shift. Um, you know, care homes is the last resort. So for some people, it is it is what they need towards the end of their life or if they have dementia, that it gives them a really good quality of life. But for many people, they want to live in their own home and indeed die in their own home. And so we've got to do much more to, you know, improve on, on, on housing. And we'll come on to that, I know. Uh, in our conversation, but we've also got to keep people as fit and well um, for as long as possible to delay the onset mm. of their need. And, uh, and that's a good care. point. But do you think do you think UK policymakers get that, Anna? Is that something that that resonates? Do you think with them? Well, yeah. I mean, they've been writing a social care, you know, green paper for the last couple of years, and just there hasn't been the political or economic. Uh, sort of decision at the top to actually say we have to spend more on social care uh we have to be more generous and why do you think that is oh goodness <laughs> uh i mean obviously there was a rather major disaster in terms of uh the conservative manifesto with the then it getting branded the dementia tax where they mm. were actually looking to um you know raise uh some revenues to fund uh, social care and uh, I think it's seen as a sort of you know political hot potato that they and obviously now with the economic circumstances the idea that treasury is going to find another one percent on GDP to generously fund social care looks sort of less realistic and and yet with um, Covid you know there has been a much stronger focus on the fact that there are a lot of people in need of care and they're not getting a good, you know, necessarily uh, a good provision at the moment. So it should really be higher up the policy agenda. And let's hope as we come out of COVID, there is some political courage to actually do do something about it. Can, but can do you I... think there's a, is, 
Yeah, go on. Sorry, uh, I just wanted to jump in on some of the comments that Anna made, and I, and I agree with you, um, Anna, and you actually raised, I think, what what is, again, some fundamental issues that, that it's it's the perception. So when, your, your comment that, you know, most people want to stay at home and, you know, and, 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 and ultimately, you know, be there till the end. Um, and I think that is one of the fundamental issues that, that, you know, moving out of home in your later life is not aspirational in the UK. You know, the thought of someone in the UK in their 70s moving into a retirement or care environment is, is freak, it freaks them out. I mean, let's be frank, it's not an aspirational thing. It's not something anyone looks forward to in the UK. Whereas no. in Australia and New Zealand, it actually is aspirational. And what's interesting, when you start to ask around in the new generation of retirement communities in the UK, and, and you know, there, there, is, there is a number of them doing amazing things, when you ask the people who live in those communities, they will all say to you, I should have done this years ago. I'm now actually having a great time. I'm, I'm now devoid of the chores that, you know, were tied me to my home, which didn't allow me to do things I wanted to do. So, so and, and this is reflected in all the numbers, you know, the percentage yeah, of people definitely. in the UK who live in retirement the communities. The evidence is that people move in a crisis, definitely. Yeah, and, and, yeah. and that's, the, that's the shift that has to happen. Firstly, we have to give people a really, really good reason to leave their family home. It has to be compelling to leave. And that means it's got to be better than the family home. So I think that's a task. And, and that's not just the provider of the retirement community. It's also government policy that says to someone, move out of your three-bedroom home or two-bedroom or four-bedroom home, you and your partner, or that you, you know, you're living there by yourself, free that up for a family to move into, and we will make it attractive for you to do that. And, and, and you know, not... not Put restrictions or taxes or whatever it is yeah. um, that stops that person making that decision. I think we've also got to recognise that people want to stay in the communities where. So it's not just about getting them out of the family home. They need to be alternative, 100%. attractive, and affordable yeah, options 100%. in the communities yeah, yeah. where they live. And for some people, as I say, if you're a low-income homeowner, you don't necessarily see those uh, alternatives at the moment as being affordable. And so they also need to be across 10 years. So to have, you know, shared ownership arrangements or um, even in the future, you know, some private rental uh, for that age group. So I think there's just a, a real paucity at the moment of um, options. And this is why we're also campaigning to make sure that all new homes are built to higher accessibility standards. And it's fantastic the government have actually been consulting on this and uh, we really hope that they will uh, listen to um, the views not only of organisations like ourselves who think this will benefit um, and future-proof the housing stock for an ageing population but also address the concerns of disability um, uh, groups so that we have that much greater uh, selection of opportunities, the full range, uh, including, you know, for those who both... Uh, see that as a as a as an option for them retirement communities but that we also have more mainstream options that are accessible and adaptable in the places where people live uh, currently and and I, I guess at the heart of all these things do you see that the, you know, some of the failures that, that you both have described in terms of policy in terms of decision making do you see that, that there is a genuine uh, ageism at the core of that or, or is it just is it just ignorance? <laughs> well, 
I mean, in the because I mean, research, I guess we... you, you think about policymakers, right? They're, they're all sort of young, youngish folk in their twenties <laughs> that come out of university with a PPE degree. Ironically, well, PPE, they but, may be the ones uh, who are advising, but uh, you know, often the ones making the decisions are, are actually, uh, you know, perhaps in the age bracket that we think about in their fifties and sixties, increasingly. But um, you know. Our research on stereotypes showed that the sort of view, these views are pretty pervasive. Um, you know, whether it's employers who see older workers um, having sort of lower levels of performance or, you know, not as willing to learn, um, you know, people in healthcare professionals, um, in a sense, not providing the interventions that maybe could help people to um, you know, live a healthier life. So some sort of rationing there. And indeed, in, in policy, as I talked about, um, you know, uh, uh, as in fact, you were saying, you know, that there's somehow older people are using up all the resources, you know, look at the debates about the, 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 the state pension and so on. So I think these stereotypes are very pervasive and clearly do then influence the decision makers, um, you know, in all sorts of um, positions. Are they pervasive among the older older people as well? Can can I can I jump in there because um, the it, what's interesting about this conversation is that um, ten years ago no one would have had this conversation, and I think um, Anna raised before you know the changing demographics, and I think as the demographics change, there's psychographics that are changing as well. I think the baby boomers won't put up with what the post-war generation put up with. You know, they were much more stoic. They were much more you know. Um, you know, stiff upper lip, all those sort of things. They put up with a lot more than the baby boomers. You know, the baby boomers um, just will not accept the sort of uh, dishing out of ageism that has happened over the last 30 or 40 years. And and I think what we'll see, and we're seeing it now through this conversation, is that the, there there is going to be a focus on, just like many other isms in our society, there is a focus and now an acceptance that that things have to change, and um, there are now votes in it. You know, there you know uh, the, the baby boomers will vote will vote will vote you know against things that won't allow them to live the life that they've been used to through you know through the, over the last twenty years. And and if that means that they're being discriminated against, I think you'll start to see a backlash at, at the political level. Hence, again, I'm repeating myself, but this is this is why these conversations are happening. And I think as that as that starts to permeate deeper into society and people are made aware of it, you know, anti-aging creams. I mean, we, you know, we, I don't think it's got anything to do with, with the age of the person making the statement. I hear it on, you know, uh, morning breakfast shows. People just do it by habit, you know, and, and you know, we, we've been, we've, we've seen examples of this, uh, you know, at local council level where people say, well, you can't call this ageist because the people on this council are over the age of 70. So it, it, it's, it's, not about, it's not about the person delivering the message. It's what society has accepted as the message. And I think now people are saying that's no longer acceptable for this reason. And we need to relook at what we, you know, the, the language that we're using. Mm. I totally agree. Yeah, I mean, in our analysis of, of language that we've recently published looking uh, things like media discourse, advertising, you know, it's it's really, really clear that all this sort of ageing being something that you have to fight off, you know, as you say, the sort of anti-ageing, but also associating old age with decline 
Um, and, you know, the sorts of products and the way that advertisers, it's, you know, if it's not incontinence pads or, you know, uh, hearing aids, then you won't see older people in adverts. You know, it's, it's, um, we, you know, there's not this sort of idea that we are consumers at all ages. We want products that help us to live the best life. And actually the advertisers and product designers and others should be making uh, those available and inclusive for everybody. And, so what um, would you like to see happen there, Anna, when it comes to... So if we're talking about ageist language, what, what, what needs to happen to stop that? Because, I mean, uh, cosmetics firms aren't going to stop selling anti-aging cream anytime soon, are they? Well, they they can uh, sell it in a more positive way. I mean, you know, yes, we like to look after our skin that's fine but let's not sort of uh portray this as something about fighting off um no uh, absolutely i just one aging. of the downsides of my new webcam is you can see all the wrinkles in my face with all this horrible <laughs> hd zoom so I, I'm, I'm very but, sensitive myself but but no but yeah, on a but serious no, more note, seriously more seriously i mean i think that uh you know advertising standards authority should be setting standards and and implementing so you them think they, do, they, they need to clamp down you think for the asa some of the needs worst to be sort of examples yes but obviously, there's a more positive way as well that advertisers, you know, the moment things like stock photography, it's all sort of wrinkly hands and, you know, either you've got the skydiving granny, you know, or, you know, hunched over a walking stick. So um, I think we need to really capture the diversity of people in later life. So, you know, there are things to be done. And when it comes to the media, well, and social media, I mean, you know, we know social media in general seems to be a place where you do get more hate speech um whether that is on on race or anything else but we see there Mm. too um you know some very negative use of language about older people and uh, you know in the same way that social media companies are, are needing to take responsibility for uh you know clamping down on some of the worst excesses then similarly whether um it's age or race or gender um, that needs to be to be done. Mm. Um, and and what, then what about the traditional media? Yeah, the mainstream media. I mean, obviously, it's not as extreme in terms of some of the language and terminology as social media. Um, but even there, you know, the the editor's code, which is the sort of um, uh, that mainstream broadcast and, and and print media would be expected to to follow. Um, does include other protected characteristics. That's the word we use uh, coming from the Equality Act of things like disability, race, gender. Um, But it's silent on age, although it is a protected characteristic. So it's things like that that, you know, just need to be addressed, really. Mm -hmm. And, 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 And that, when it comes to then how we think about the sorts of places we want people to live, all of this stuff then is is quite pervasive. Is that is that sort of generally the feeling that because we you know we as a society are almost told that you know older people are, are this and that 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 then feeds through into the sorts of things that 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 does it alter expectations? Yeah, well, we start believing it about ourselves. You know, if we're thinking pessimistically about our later lives and not realistically, um, I'm not saying to be overly optimistic either, because as 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 Eugene's saying that you know, we do get to a point sometimes in our later life where we may develop health issues that affect our abilities. And we need to think about those ideally in advance. So we're not having to, for example, suddenly move house in a crisis because we find we can't get to the upstairs loo. You know, we need to be uh, facing up to some of these things earlier in our life and thinking, 
you know, what is the sort of home I need to live in? Can I adapt my current home, put in a downstairs loo, a walk-in chair, or actually am I better off moving to somewhere that's been purpose-built and designed, uh, mm. you know, with, with ageing in mind? Um, but and, at the moment, Eugene, I if, guess, yeah, we're not sorry, planning ahead, sorry. Yeah. Uh, no, 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 that's fine. I, I, I'm sorry, I saw some choice, Joanna. I'm, uh, Eugene, on that point, I, I guess... Um, this this point around planning ahead that Anna makes is is obviously spot on. One of the the challenges that consumers would raise is, well, I don't want to live with all the other old people. I, I I'm really well, and I you know, I want to continue my my life of, uh, of 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 activity. Why would I want to go and live with all the other sort of sick old people? That that you know that is. I mean, there was a comment actually on on um article I was reading the other day. I, I was having a, a back and forth Twitter discussion with with this chap on on that exact point. Um, so how can you as architects and developers and, and placemakers, how can you deal with some of these, uh, I guess, these, these preconceptions that people have about well, yeah. ghettos? Because that's what we're talking about, right? Well, well, the first thing I'd say is I think they're 100% right. I, I don't think anyone should be forced to live with any one homogenous group of anyone, uh, you know. Um, students in student housing don't want to live in, you know, in, in a in a in a suburb with just all students. I mean, obviously, a true village operates when you get a cross-section of community, you know. Um, we all we all feel comfortable when we look across a square and we see children kicking a ball and, you know, adults, you know, having a coffee and teenagers holding hands and older people sitting there having a conversation. Now, there is no reason why we can't, cannot create environments that deliver that. And, and you know, the model that we're working on um, it, it places these sort of communities in town centres. And they, it places them in town centres because it enables that that community then to engage with everything else that happens in a town centre, whether it's a high street or a nursery or a, or student housing, you know, 20 metres down the road or, or the retail or whatever it is. Now, that's the sort of environments we should be creating because just like... Um, they need assistance. So do the children uh, need assistance when they finish school and it'd be great for someone to be there to provide after-school care. It'd be great to provide, uh, you know, a, a service where, uh, you know, children at a nursery could could be cared for by older people who've, who've got lots of time and lots of wisdom and lots of patience. Um, you know, th this notion that we have to create... Uh, ghettos or enclaves of certain types of people i think has is 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 one of the major town planning shifts that we'll see over the next 10 years again COVID will have played a major role in that you know city centers that just have offices look at what's happened right so so this you know and and and, and if you have a look at the cities around the world that are picking up faster in terms of people going back to work um, you know, currently, as we speak today, you know, in, at the end of November, the ones that have other uses around them are the first ones to fill up. Paris, Milan, all these other places. You look at central London, empty. And places yeah. that have yeah. other uses in the middle of them are all getting back to work because there's other reasons to be there. And so uh, I think this is the solution. And what that does just by default is it stops enclaves happening and it creates better environments that people want to live in you know mm. and i think that's the solution absolutely i mean this uh, as we rethink and redesign our town centers here in the uk 
you know, if we are going to see a retraction in the amount of retail, I think inevitably probably a reduction in the amount of office uh, space is required then there is a real opportunity for us to, as they're saying, build back better, bit of a, a, a jargon phrase, but an all-age community where people, it's much more integrated. And as you say, where amenities are accessible and people, it's very walkable. Um, so I think having those um, options, those accessible housing options available to people in those um, places um, where they can live and um play and do all the things that uh, we want to do to have a good later life, I think is is really critical. And the demand seems to be there. So this is one of the things I'm really interested in, because although we see that the pattern is that people hang on in their own homes for as long as possible until it's probably not any longer tenable and then move in a crisis, there does seem to be demand. So from some of the work we looked at, one in five people in their 60s would be interested in and in, in a f- sort of future-proofed home, one that would, you know, last them. Um, and even looking at people sort of in terms of their own homes, about one in three of people over 50 would recognise that they need work done to their home to make it sort of suitable for them as as they age. But it seems that for many, money is, is a barrier, although there is a growing interest in things like equity release products, obviously. So I think there is a challenge about what else needs to happen um, is it just the lack of supply? Is it just making these affordable, attractive opportunities? You know, as you say, getting planners to re-envisage uh, the sort of mix of housing and other um, amenities in, in towns. Um, or is there still something that we need to do with people themselves to shift their attitudes so they have a more aspirational view of their own later life? Um, and I, as I was saying, I think ageism plays into that because it, it leaves people with a negative view and they don't want to think about it. And so they just go into denial. So it's a, just- it's a, it's a flip. It's a flip side of the sort of the, the Waitrose point from a few years back where um, probably not now, but certainly, you know, a few years ago, the people would 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 create. Uh, petitions to encourage Waitrose to come to their area because they either wanted to buy overpriced avocados or wanted their house prices to go up because there's a Waitrose next door. How do we, uh, Anna Dixon, how do we get to that point with with older people where where the the wider mainstream in society says yeah hell yeah i'd love to have a load of older people living near me because actually yeah i see the the social the economic value in agency i see the social and the economic value in independence and actually look Crikey, my parents uh, are, are, are into that space, and I'd like them to be able to walk around the the, the, the park with my kids yeah. on a Saturday yeah. afternoon. Where, ha, what what do we need to do to get well, to not, that point? We've- notwithstanding the inequalities, obviously uh, fifty plus do account for about half of all um, sort of household spending. So you know, people talk about this silver economy, and I think you know we need to recognise that part of a thriving place is is having. Uh, older people who are living there for whom those shops and services are accessible you know one of the big issues about the high street is that a lot of the people who were shopping there were older consumers and um, so I think that needs to be seen that actually there is an economic opportunity and that it is part of a thriving community huge amount of volunteering goes on from people in later life and then obviously you've got um you know, some of them are working, contributing in that way. So I think, you know, it's it's about getting over this mindset about social care. You know, that is a small proportion of our end of life 
and most of our later life we are actually continuing to live and work and play and spend and so I think there is just some, as we said earlier, some of these ageist stereotypes are obviously in the heads of planners and, and uh, town councils and others. So that really needs to be challenged. Yeah, yeah. And, and what would you say then, just as we conclude then, Eugene, what, what would your view be? What, what can we learn from your experience abroad? And how can we infuse that into, uh, you know, into cities and town centres here? I, I think, I think um, there is one reality that I've seen, and that is that Creating a, a later living community in town centres actually does deliver vibrancy and um, better health for the high street. Uh, we know for a fact that most of the online spending is done by people under the age of 45. And that means that all the people in that category above there are transacting person to person. They're taking, you know, and, and, and that again, you know, like it or not, not, but that's where most of the wealth sits. So. Bringing people into town centres and providing the opportunity for them to live in an environment that's not an enclave but a cross-generational community, I think is really where we should be pushing policy in the UK towards because it's a model that's worked and is really gathering speed in places, US, Australia, New Zealand. I mean, the sun cities in the US, those sorts of environments, those sort of communities are, are, are diminishing in, in, in value as the baby boomer moves in. Remember, they're better travelled, you know, healthier, wealthier, and 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 better educated. It's just because they are of a generation that, that had a lot of investment put into them. Now, what what are their aspirations as they grow older? Deliver on their aspirations, and you have a market. That's what I truly believe. And Anna raised a really good point. Everyone focuses on the care. The the care part is probably anywhere between three and eighteen months of someone's end of life. That's not where people live their later life. That's the last bit. We need to focus on the other bit, the you know the 10 or 15 years before that, and have these people contribute into society because they've got so much to contribute. Mm. And whether it's yep. volunteering or working or whatever it is, they are valuable members of society and we should engage them in society so that we can actually leverage off that. Right, quick final word, Anna. I agree. Tell, tell us, to what, <laughs> what should the priority be for 2021 then in terms of moving the dial in the way that we've discussed what's what's one easy thing we can do well i think as we've said we do need to tackle these pervasive negative attitudes to the age shift and to um older people more generally and i think if we do we'll make better decisions about the homes that we build we'll make better decisions about the work environments that we create for people and hopefully as we just were discussing uh, have more thriving communities as we come out of the pandemic it's going to be critical that we rebuild some of those intergenerational relationships which i guess in the media have been portrayed as as them and us in actually in people's lives family bonds are closer than ever people keeping in touch helping neighbors so we've got to build on that build on the positives Thank you then to Anna Dixon, uh, boss at the Centre for Ageing Better, and Eugene Marchese from Guild Living. Lots to discuss there and much at stake over the coming months. Uh, and if there are issues that you feel strongly about, then please do get in touch. Do subscribe to PropCast just by searching the name on Apple or Spotify. Thank you for listening uh, and we'll see you again soon. I've been Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting. Music